0: Good health is a crown worn by the healthy that only the ill can see. Your health really is your wealth. Join us for the next hour as we explore disease and attaining and maintaining good health. This is Dischem Medical Monday, brought to you by Dischem, pharmacists who care.
1: Welcome to Discem Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson. Thank you for joining us this Monday morning. We have a very special guest who will be joining us by Skype. Her name is Dr. Alison Bentley. She is a sleep therapist, and uh, I'll just discuss with her what she actually does when we get her online. But just to tell you that we're going to be speaking about different sleep disorders, and one of the most common things that that I see as an ENT is patients who come in with a complaint of snoring, or their partner tells them. That they are snoring It's different in children and adults We'll be speaking primarily about uh, adult snoring and sleep disorders And uh, if you've got any questions You can SMS us on 34519 Phone on 10 And you can send us a telegram on 61 So we are speaking to Dr. Alison Bentley She's a speech therapist joking sleep therapist and she will be speaking to us about all different types of sleep disorders she practices at sunwood park and donald gordon hospital let's just see if we can get hold of her alison can you hear me yeah i
2: can
1: okay good how's the the signal there no load shedding
2: Nope, no load shedding
1: okay so as a sleep therapist can you explain to the listeners what you actually do and um And then we'll go into sleep disorders.
2: Sure. So what I, I'm actually a GP by registration and, but I've only ever done sleep disorders. So I see patients with all kinds of different disorders, including snoring, sleep apnea, narcolepsy, insomnia, babies who don't sleep, weird things that happen during the night, um, all those kinds of things.
1: Okay great because I know the the first time that we met you used to uh, lecture at vets you were in uh, yep. the physiology department you still lecture at all
2: No well I do some work for to help um some postgraduates do research but I don't no I don't lecture formally anymore
1: Okay and you have a sleep lab where you where you see your uh, patients where are those sleep labs that you have
2: So we what we're trying to do is move the whole concept of of screening or doing the sleep study for sleep apnea to find the severity of apnea out of hospital. It's it's much cheaper to do it out of hospital, to do it at home. We certainly have the technology to do it, and patients prefer sleeping at home. So I don't have a fixed sleep lab. We're trying to set one up so that we can have almost a an excellence, a, state, a center of excellence for sleep medicine because there isn't one in the country at all. There's lots of different sleep labs, you know, in-hospital sleep labs, and you you would have to go in hospital if you were trying to diagnose any other sleep disorder apart from sleep apnea.
1: Okay, so let's uh, start at the beginning. Most patients so basically yeah. labs
2: are in every home across the across the province. Okay, <laughs> that's
1: that's fantastic because I think a lot of people uh, the actual thought of going to sleep in a sleep clinic um, yeah. Is uh, what puts them off. I've, not, I've seen that with my patients, and also I don't know. Do you think they sleep as well when they sleep clinic? They might have difficulty falling asleep. No,
2: no. We know they don't sleep as well. I mean, fortunately, the kind of people that we are doing the sleep recordings on—people who have sleep apnea—are really very sleepy generally. Um, and so they do actually fall asleep. And the important thing is that if you do have to go to a sleep lab, an in-hospital sleep lab, remember that we're not really looking at the sleep stages. I mean, that's not what's important. What's important is that we find out what is happening while you are asleep. And so that's looking for breathing problems. That's looking for leg movements or anything else. So it doesn't matter if you don't have your normal sleep. Um, we're just trying to find out whether one, any of these strange things are happening during your sleep. I mean, there is no point in sending an insomniac, so somebody who really battles to sleep at home, when it's quiet, all of that, in hospital, to have a ton of wires put on them in a they're strange They're never going to sleep. They're not going to sleep at all. So okay. there's no point in doing that.
1: Okay, so who, uh, when would a patient come to see you? I know uh, as an ENT people come to me and they complain that they are snoring, that they are tired during the day. They mm. uh, keep on waking up during the night. They feel like they're uh, gasping. So I would then yes. send them to you um, to have a, a sleep test, to else send to you, or can patients come directly to you without going sure. to another healthcare professional first?
2: Well, it depends what they're coming for. So if they're coming for a consultation to come and talk to me about their sleep, they can just come and see me. Um, I, it doesn't need a referral. However, if you're going to come for a sleep study. We, I really think it's important that a doctor manages that process. So um, And so we want you to be referred by a doctor. Um, and that can be your GP. You can just go to your GP and say, listen, I'm snoring. I'm waking up tired. Those are the big cardinal things that we look for um, in sleep apnea. I'm waking up tired. I'm sleepy during the day. I'm not coping at work. Those kinds of symptoms. And then ask your doctor to refer you to for a sleep study. Um, and they will refer you, and then the whole process can can go from there.
1: Okay, we're going to take a short ad break, and then we're going to discuss the actual sleep studies after that.
0: This is Medical Monday, brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care.
1: Welcome back to Discam Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson. We're speaking to Dr. Alison Bentley, who is a sleep therapist, and she's at uh, Donald Gordon and Sunwood Park hospitals if you've got any questions for her please sms us on 34519 you can send a telegram on 061 8951019 Dr Bentley so we're talking about the actual sleep study now so you mm. s- uh, we were saying that it's much more comfortable to do it in in people's houses across the province wherever they may be what uh, mm. does a person come to the house and then set up um, the sleep study can you tell us a bit more about it
2: Okay, so usually what happens is we have various sites around around Hauteng. So at Sunwood Park in Boxburg, in Edenvale, in Bryanston, and Pretoria. And what we ask patients to do is to come to that centre during the day. So any time during the day, to fetch the device, um, and then we explain to them exactly how to put it on, what they have to do at night, and they take it home. And then when they go to sleep at night, they put the device on. It's it's a big watch with a probe on the finger and a little sticker on the chest to look at snoring and, and which, and body position. And they just hook it up, hit the big on button, sleep with it, next morning pack it all up and bring it back to the office. So we do that because basically we just cannot have people running around the countryside trying to find houses and people at home. So it's a bit like, you know, it's a bit like when people go no we'll deliver it to your house and you go but I'm not at home like what do I do
1: okay um, and at least then they can get uh, told by yes. you and demonstrated what uh, how
2: exactly how
1: to use it okay so let's go through the device what does it actually monitor you said there's something on the finger and something on the chest what um, yes. do you need to monitor in a sleep study
2: right so classically when you do a sleep study for sleep apnea all you actually need to do is measure the breathing and so there are components to that. Some of the devices will measure the flow of air through the nose, so they'll with as you breathe in and out, and they will measure your chest movement to see whether you're breathing. Now, if you're going to have obstructive sleep apnea, which is the most common one, then what we see is that the air stops moving through your nose and mouth. So the flow stops, but your chest still continues to move. So it's still trying to breathe. So it's a bit like having a hose pipe, switching on the hose pipe, and standing on the hose. So the the flow is coming, but you can't actually get it through. So most devices will have that kind of thing. they will Also, all devices will have the probe on the finger is monitoring the oxygen level in your blood and your pulse rate. Now, the device that we use is slightly different in that um, we have a device that measures what we call the, the, the heart response to the apnea. So when you have an apnea and you stop breathing... Obviously, that's a bit of a problem because the brain, you're asleep and you're not breathing. And so the brain has to wake you up to start breathing again. And as it wakes you up, it has this quite typical response in the, in the heart rate and in the blood pressure. And our device actually measures that instead of measuring the actual flow that's going through the nose and the mouth. But it has been validated. So it's been checked against the full studies. It's been checked against other devices. And it's, it's absolutely valid.
1: Okay. Then so, the, yes. the little
2: sticker, the little sticker on the chest measures the snoring level because we want to know how bad a snorer you are and also measures body position. And the reason for that is because most people on their backs are going to snore and have apnea a whole lot worse than they are on their side or if they lie on their tummy. And that's important because sometimes it can lead us to say, listen, the best, the best way to treat your snoring is for you to have an oral device which holds your jaw forward to stop when you're lying on your back to stop the snoring and apnea from happening there.
1: Okay, so Those, let, are, can we, those can, yes. basics. Okay, so let, can we start um, discussing obstructive sleep apnea? So, um, what's the difference uh, just briefly between uh, obstructive sleep apnea and a central sleep apnea, just so that okay. uh, we can differentiate?
2: Yeah. So, if you go back to the hose, the, the garden hose analogy, obstructive sleep apnea is where you switch on the hose and stand on the pipe um and central sleep apnea is where you don't switch on the don't switch on the tap and in so in breathing terms what happens in obstructive sleep apnea your brain is trying to breathe and your chest is trying to breathe but because there's a blockage in the back of the throat so behind the tongue you can't actually move any air in central apnea what happens is that the brain stops breathing so just for a short period of time the brain ta- kind of takes a break from breathing um, and then restarts again. So in that case, what we would see is we would see no movement in the chest wall at all. Now, central sleep apnea sounds very, very frightening, um, and it can be, but it's extremely rare. So out of all the sleep apneas that we would see, maybe 1% to 2% of the patients would have central apnea.
1: Okay, so a, a lot of patients, when they come to me, they think it's just their blocked nose that's causing the sleep apnea, and I tell them that it's so much more than than that, and... It's actually not so common to have obstructive sleep apnea being caused by a nasal blockage. As I tell them, and you can correct me or add to this if you want to Mm -hmm. say, there's three places where you can generally obstruct. You can obstruct from the nose if it's rarely blocked, but that's quite rare. Then the soft palate area, but the most Mm -hmm. common one is the, the tongue and the soft tissues of the neck that uh, collapse and go down And you don't have to be Someone with nasal allergies Or a skew septum Or sinusitis mm-hmm. Or even a, a person Who's overweight To have obstructive sleep apnea I see young fit Healthy people um mm. And just for whatever reason Their soft tissues Collapse when they're sleeping And their tongue goes back And that's where The obstruction is
2: mm. yeah. No, you're right. It's usually never one thing that actually causes sleep apnea. It's a combination of things. But there are there are four factors. So you've just combined two of them. used use the separate into four factors. If you have a problem with your nose, I mean, understand that when you breathe in, you have to create this negative pressure in the chest. And so there's a sucking pressure at the back of the throat when you breathe in. And normally it should be minus one, minus two centimeters of water. It should be really quite small. If you have a blocked nose, you have to suck a lot harder to pull the air past that blocked nose. And so the pressure can go down a lot more. The palate is important because it's the narrowest part of the airway. So behind the palate, I mean, and let's understand the palate's designed to close every time you swallow. That's its job. So it's designed to close and behind it is quite a narrow piece of the airway. The tongue gets involved mainly if you lie on your back um, and the jaw moves back and the tongue moves back. And then I separate weight out because weight usually is about the weight that's sitting around the throat, um, actually narrowing that airway um, or or the whole time. So whereas the tongue only narrows the airway when you lie on your back, your weight is narrowing the airway all the time. And so it's often a combination of those. But sometimes we can look at, at, as you say, young, fit, healthy people, and they've got sleep apnea, and we go, we're not sure why you have it. But obviously, there's some anatomical thing at the back of the throat. Either they have a very long palate, or maybe they have a tongue that's too big for their jaw, so it's moving a bit at the back. So, But it it is often a combination of things. And so we often find that, you're right, if you just fix the nose, that generally doesn't solve the whole problem.
1: Yeah, um, so let, can we, agree with that, and can we discuss maybe the different uh, types? When does snoring become, is, is snoring a problem, and when does snoring become a problem?
2: Okay, so snoring in itself is not a problem. It does, as, as a medical problem, it's not a medical problem. So snoring does indicate that there's a partial obstruction to the airflow. And because there's a partial obstruction, the air is turbulent as it goes down the back of the throat. And so it catches, you know, tissue that's lying back there. Usually the little tongue at the back of the palate that we call the uvula usually catches that and starts that vibrating. And so there's, it's very rare to have a sleep apnea that hasn't been a snorer for years beforehand. But and but generally with, with increasing age and we would kind of increasing age, we kind of go over 40 for men and over 50 for women, that kind of age as you move into those older age groups. Um, we often find that just simple snoring um, moves into being sleep apnea. And how do you know that's there? Well, if you're lucky enough to sleep with a bed partner, they will tell you that you stop breathing at night. Otherwise, generally what you find is because every time you stop breathing at night, the brain has to wake you up. You find that you start feeling more sluggish in the morning. So you're not, you don't go directly to kind of very, very sleepy during the day. Often you feel fatigued. And you may not notice that because you may put it down to busy lifestyle, stresses, uh, male menopause, just m- women menopause. So you may put it down to that and not notice it creeping up. Um, and then what happens often is patients will say all of a sudden they find that they're sleepy during the day. So they fall asleep in meetings. They fall asleep watching TV regularly. Um, and, again, a lot of people go, if you watch falling asleep watching TV, they go, man, that's normal, you know. Um, but it may not be. And and what's interesting is whenever we treat patients with sleep apnea and we get their sleep right, they'll often say, I've had this a lot longer than I thought I did. And that's because they haven't recognized that feeling of sleepiness in the morning or feeling tired when they wake up in the morning until it got extreme.
0: Um,
2: yeah.
1: Okay. We're just going to take another quick ad break and then we'll get back talking about obstructive sleep apnea.
0: This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacist who care.
1: Welcome back to your Discam Medical Monday. One oh one point nine. Hi I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson. We're speaking to Dr. Alison Bentley, who's a sleep therapist. We're speaking about sleep disorders and at the moment we're busy talking about obstructive sleep apnea if you've got any questions you can message us on sms 34519 telegram 0618951019 so dr bentley we're talking about obstructive sleep apnea and what actually mm. happens in people feeling tired during the day Um so at what point would you say that people should say hey wait a minute maybe this isn't just snoring. You said they're feeling tired in the morning, falling asleep, watching mm-hmm. TV, maybe driving. Um, do you send them any of those scales to uh, take at home? Do you believe any of these sleep, uh, like with uh, sleepiness scale? Do you think that mm. uh, that they are of value, or do you think well,
2: they are of value. So yeah. the main scale that we use to check, and and your listeners can just download it off the webs off, off a website. It's freely available on the internet. It's called the Stop Bang Questionnaire. So that's eight. It's not so much questions, but sometimes it's on examination. So there's eight There's eight components to that. The S stands for snoring, if you snore loudly. The T stands for if you wake up tired. The O stands for observed apneas, has anybody seen you stop breathing? And we mean anybody. And the P stands for do you have high blood pressure? So that's the s- stop. The bang part of it is your BMI over 30, basically are you obese or overweight, The A stands for age, are you over 50? The N stands for neck circumference, and we would use a number of 41 centimeters for women and 43 centimeters for men. For men who are more used to doing a collar size of of inches, it's about 17 and a half inches. Your collar size is bigger than that. And the G is gender, and that's male. And what we would say is if you score five out of those, five correct out of those eight, then we know that there's an 80% chance that you're going to be positive on the study for sleep apnea. Okay. You may only have mild sleep apnea, it doesn't mean you have severe, but you you're likely to be positive for sleep apnea.
1: Okay. Can we talk actually what happens uh, to your body during the apneas? What are the physiological responses uh, to apneas? Mm. Because a lot of people think, "Oh, I snore and I have apneas, but they don't realize that it's a serious, you know, become a, become a serious medical problem." Yeah.
2: Well, what's interesting is, you know, it used to be that sleep apnea, so sleep apnea was described in 1975, treatment in 1981. So that kind of zone, we haven't really, before that, nobody really thought about it at all. Um, and in, in, you know, in those days, we would kind of go, well, that's, it, it's, it is just about waking up at night and feeling tired during the day, and that's really all it's about. But what we know now, 30 years later, is that, the response that's happening every time you wake up at night. Now, understand there's two things that happen. One, your blood, blood oxygen is going to go down because you're not breathing, so the blood oxygen drops. And secondly, you have this wake-up from sleep, which your brain um, kind of pr- produces. But when it produces that, it pours out adrenaline. So adrenaline, cortisol, all of those kind of hormones. So acutely, every time you wake up at night, what what we now know is that your blood pressure is going to go up briefly and sometimes quite high. I mean, certainly to levels at which you would, if if that was sustained, you would be on treatment for that. So it would go from 120, 80 to 160 over 110, like in five beats, and then come back because the apnea is finished, right? So there's that kind of cardiovascular response that's happening. And then because of the adrenaline, the adrenaline doesn't only act on the heart, it acts on a whole lot of other parts of the body. So what we now know is that the most important patients that we want to find um, and treat with sleep apnea are those patients who have cardiac disease. Because we now know that if you have severe sleep apnea, and so just to get back to severe sleep apnea is if you stop breathing more than 30 times, three o times per hour. And I know that sounds like a huge amount. Um, but most of our patients who are severe stop breathing 50 or 60 times an hour. So it's certainly not you know, a very, very high amount. So if you stop breathing 30 times an hour, we know that your risk of having a cardiovascular event in the next couple of years is about 30%. So one in three people who have severe sleep apnea that's untreated are going to have something wrong with their heart. Now, I mean, that ranges from just developing hypertension or actually having a stroke. I mean, literally anywhere in between. And unfortunately, we don't get to pick which one we have. So that what we do, what we're much more focused on now is finding patients who have cardiovascular disease diagnosed, either hypertension or angina or stroke or anything like that, and making sure that they've been tested for sleep apnea, because sleep apnea is going to make managing that cardiovascular complaint much harder.
1: Wow. Okay, that's uh, scary. So you've been speaking be a lot ahead. of. You've been speaking a lot about uh, mild or moderate or severe. Can you maybe mm-hmm. just go through that and tell our listeners what uh, that involves
2: right so less than five per hour um we would consider normal so you can have three apneas per hour we wouldn't worry about that um you might be snoring and we would treat the snoring then mild sleep apnea is between five and 15 per hour moderate sleep apnea from 15 to 30 per hour and then severe apnea 30 over 30 per hour and understand that if you're sleeping for eight hours and you stop breathing 30 times an hour, that basically means that you get woken up, because that's the consequence of you of you not breathing, you get woken up 240 times every night. Well, so you can understand why they wake up feeling shattered. Yeah, um,
1: and they pro- and the, the thing is they fall uh, asleep probably straight away, so they don't even realize it, but they wake up in the morning and, you know, yeah, shattered, no, as most, you
2: say. Most sleep apnees who have severe apnea will tell me, no, they only wake up two or three times a night, because that's the, the wake-ups that they're aware of. So these wake ups, because obviously now they're doing this every night, the brain is incredibly short of sleep. So the brain literally wakes them up to start breathing and puts them to sleep straight away because it's so, so tired. Um, and when we look at the recordings, we will see them stop breathing for maybe 20 seconds at a time, have three breaths and go straight back to sleep and stop breathing again. So it's, it's, it just go, it just runs, you know, the whole, all night, this, this lack of breathing.
1: So, when do you decide to start treating the, the sleep apnea?
2: So, what we, the main thing is, is to treat the patient. So, if the patient is symptomatic, and that's where you mentioned the Epworth Sleepiness Scale, again, that's available on the, on, on the internet if people want to do it, and you can do it yourself. And it really talks about how likely are you to fall asleep in different situations. Um, there's a, to, you can get a total score of 24. Um, And that's when you're falling asleep driving. So you can get a total sleep score of 24. We would consider a score over 10. So 10 out of 24, we would consider that pathological sleepiness. So it's important that when we do these studies and we do sleep studies that we really look at what are we trying to treat. When we're treating uh, mild sleep apnea and up until apnea index of about 15 per hour, we're really treating the patient. How are they feeling? Are they feeling tired? Is it about waking up in the middle of the night? So we tend to treat those symptoms. Once we get over that, what we are treating is we're treating this cardiovascular um, problem that, that, that is going to come up. So over over 15, even if you didn't have any symptoms, over 15 apneas now, even if you didn't have any symptoms, we would say you need to treat this. So just as if you have high blood pressure and you don't have any symptoms from that, um, in that you don't really have a headache, you don't really have anything from that, you still need to have it treated because the long-term consequences are, are extreme. So in that, also, if your apnea, if you have more than 15 to 20 apneas per hour at night, we would say please go on treatment because the, con- the long-term consequences are significant.
1: Okay. And, um, should we discuss some of the treatments?
2: Sure. So if uh, when, we get the, the, when we have below 15 per hour and we're in that mild kind of category, we literally go for- through those four things and go, what can we treat of those four things? And so I am going to send patients to you, Dean, to fix their nose
1: because if
2: if the nose is open, then they're not sucking as hard to try and breathe in, and so that does help in that kind of system. But it honestly doesn't help if they they have a lot of apneas when they lie on their back, for example. The nose is not going to fix that at all. Well, the best way to fix that is what's called, you know, in posh, posh medical language, you call it positional therapy. Basically, what it means is stop lying on your back. Yeah, so right?
1: I've heard of people sewing tennis balls into their back uh, yeah,
2: of their pajamas. Tennis balls are a bit large, but squash balls work really well. Okay, and, so you and like Make a little pocket yes. in whatever you wear at night. Make a little pocket in the back and put a squash ball inside. Because it means that whenever you turn over onto your back, it's uncomfortable enough for you to turn over onto your side again. Um, and honestly, that can make a massive difference because... When we look at how many apneas you have the whole night, it might be 15 apneas per hour. But when we look at just the periods where you're lying on your back, it might be 60 per hour. And so we know that if we can fix that, then we know that all the apneas are going to go away. So sometimes that's the simplest thing to do. You could There's also dental devices or oral devices yeah. that you can use that hold your jaw forward. So they're kind of fixed onto your teeth and hold your jaw forward. And then the last one is lose weight. And that's always the most unpopular one. I know, the most but it difficult But Honestly, to do. honestly, is a major feature here that you, that if you, particularly in men, if you can lose 10 kilograms, you are going to make a significant difference to your, to your apnea.
1: Okay. Um, what about when the apnea has become more severe?
2: Well, once the apnea is more severe, then partly because, you know, we can do all of those kind of things, but often we, we can't, Keep checking the sleep study and redoing the sleep study to check that you've been treated. Once we get over 20, 15 to 20 per hour, because we know we have to have you well treated because of these long-term consequences, we're going to recommend that you go on on to nasal CPAP. Now everybody doesn't want to go on nasal CPAP because they think it's unsexy. They think they're going to look like Darth Vader, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it is true. You are going to have a mask over your nose or under your nose, and there are many different types of masks. There are at least five different CPAP distributors, all with different masks in the in the country. Um, and so you are going to have a mask, and the machine itself is the original. One when they first did the study to see if it would work was a reverse vacuum cleaner. So all it does is take air from the room. It's not oxygen. Take air from the room, put it under pressure, and blow it down a pipe and down through your nose into the back of your throat, into that place that's collapsing under that negative pressure. Once it gets there, it creates a positive pressure, and it's what we call a pneumatic splint. So it's literally an air splint which holds your throat open, and then you can breathe normally. Now, nobody likes the concept of it, and so what we do is every patient, we say, right, we need to do a CPAP type titration because we need to know what pressures you need to be on. And we would do another test, which is giving them the machine for three nights, um, and then they sleep on that machine. And then what we do is download the information from the machine. If it works well, then literally when my staff go and get them the CPAP from the patient's, or the patients bring it back, the patients go, I'm not moving until you sell me one of these, because I feel amazing, I feel so good once I'm sleeping on this thing. Um, so if that, if that happens, then we have no problem with patients staying on the machine. If you, if you, have, if you have a patient who really is not, um, not very symptomatic, so they're not very sleepy during the day, and we do get those patients who are not very sleepy during the day, then often it's difficult to stay on CPAP because they don't really feel uh, a, a huge benefit.
1: Okay, and you, you mentioned nasal CPAP specifically. Um, do we not use those big masks anymore that go over the mouth and the nose?
2: So you can. I mean, that's one of the options. So generally what what you need to do is when you go on to CPAP is see which mask suits you the best. Ideally, you should go on a nasal mask just over the nose because what should happen is that If we can restore your breathing through the nose, then the mouth closes. Then your mouth closes and you don't need that. But in some patients, they have become such mouth breathers that they continue to breathe through their mouth and it becomes quite difficult to manage those two. And then we put a full face mask on. But what happens often is the distributors will just automatically give a full face mask um, to patients and patients find it quite claustrophobic um, because despite the fact that there's a lot of air coming in, um, it's quite tricky to get your breathing right so that you can breathe in and out because obviously there's air pouring in all the time, and so breathing out can be a bit tricky um, because you're pushing against this pressure of air coming in. So it does take a little while, five minutes. It does take five minutes just to get your breathing right on this machine, um, and then you're usually okay.
1: Okay. You, you mentioned that there's a, a whole lot of uh, different distributors. Do medical aids usually <laughs> pay for the CPAP machines?
2: They, it depends. I mean, there's some medical aids that pay more than others. So some medical aids will only give like 4,000 rand towards a medical, um, CPAP. Other medical aids will take it out of the devices, um, allocation that you have. You know, the same thing that crutches and hearing aids come from that devices. Um, other medical aids will take it out, So Discovery, for example, takes it out of savings. Um, and the reason for that is because they, they have good evidence that patients don't use it properly. And they give it up and they stop using it or they never actually use it at all. Um, and so they're kind of saying, no, the patient must pay for it because then maybe they'll use it a bit better. Um, so it depends on the medical aid. But most medical aids have accepted the fact that sleep apnea is an important disorder, that it needs to be managed, that the best way to manage it is with CPAP. But because of this problem of what we call compliance of patients actually using it every night, um, they often are reluctant. To pay for the whole thing from risk.
1: Okay. And what, what is the price? What do the prices range from?
2: So it's, they start at about 8,000 rand, um, for the CPAP machine. Um, you, you can get cheaper ones. Um, so they, they have imported cheaper ones from China and India and obviously places like that. You can get cheaper ones. The problem with those is that generally there's no technical support in South Africa. So if there's an actual problem with the machine, you have a distributor but you don't have any technical support into actually fixing that fixing that machine. Um, so so from about eight thousand Rand um, upwards. And of course so when we talk about CPAP machines, we talk about it's the same as a car, right? The basic CPAP machine, which is the 8000 Rand one, the evidence would tell us that it's just as good as any of the better, any of the more expensive machines. But you're also entitled to say, well, I want the Jag. I don't want the City Golf. <laughs> I yeah. want the Jag, and so you can buy more expensive machines and. Just to explain, so the basic machine, what that would do is based on the three nights of, of CPAP that we, we do, we know what pressure your machine has to be set at. We set the machine at that pressure, and it stays at that pressure. Going on from that, you have what's called an auto CPAP, and the auto CPAP adjusts continuously during the night depending on how much pressure you need. So obviously that could be a little more comfortable for people because the pressure is maybe a little too high for them constantly. Above that, now you're looking, you're kind of going into the zone of 25,000 Rand, is what we call a bi-level device, and that is set so that when you breathe in, you have a high pressure, let's say 12, the the pressures go from 0 to 20, so when you breathe in, you have a pressure of 12, when you breathe out, you have a pressure of 6, so obviously that's even more comfortable. Um, so, I mean, if patients came and said, I want a BiPAP, um, the company's going to go, okay, we'll sell you a BiPAP, we don't care, just as they wouldn't argue about you buying a JAG.
1: Okay. Okay, thank you. You explained it uh, really nicely. And I think an important thing to emphasize is that uh, compliance is, is as with all things uh, medically prescribed, is a big, big problem because it's um, often uncomfortable or patients mm. feel better where they don't feel like they're getting the benefit from it so they uh, don't use it.
2: mm. But they are, they are getting the benefit. And, and as I said, it's the same as hypertension because you don't necessarily feel the benefit right now, but you, there is a, there is a benefit in, in, in the long term. So it's, it's, it's often very difficult to get patients to comply and to, st- and to, st- and to stay on CPAP. Um, and that is our biggest problem. And I think it's important for, um, for patients as well as doctors to understand that every CPAP comes with a smart card in it or a, communicates with an app or something, depending on, on the different kind of CPAP machines. And so at any point, doctors should be able to say to patients, if they're treating them for, let's say, atrial fibrillation. Now, we know that there's a very strong connection between sleep apnea and atrial fibrillation. Um, and if they're treating patients for atrial fibrillation and they know the patient's on CPAP, the doctor's absolutely entitled to go, please get me a download from your CPAP for the last month. And if they come patients come in and they haven't used the machine, then the doctor's quite within their right of why are you expecting me to fix this atrial fibrillation when you're not prepared to do your bit, which is wearing that CPAP machine, which is going to make treating this atrial fibrillation much, much easier. So, you know, it is important to understand that doctors are entitled to ask for that download, they are entitled to get angry if they're trying to treat another disorder that's linked to sleep apnea and the patients are not bothering to stay on the CPAP.
1: Okay, great. We're going to take another short ad break, and then uh, we'll speak about maybe some operations
0: for sleep apnea. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Dischem, pharmacists who care.
1: Welcome back to Dischem Medical Monday. We're in our final quarter of the show, speaking to Dr. Alison Bentley, sleep therapist. If you've got any questions, you can SMS in on 34519 or send a telegram 61 and Dr. Bentley, we've just been speaking about obstructive sleep apnea and CPAP machines. Mm. Is CPAP the gold standard for treating obstructive sleep apnea?
2: Yes, it is. Um, it's, it's, it's what we know the most about. And we know that most patients who go on to CPAP, um, as again, as I said, we can download the information from the machine. It will, it will reduce the apneas down to five, um, which is, which is what, the, what the normal kind of value is so that we know. That we know that no matter what the cause of the apnea is we know that cpap's going to treat it the problem with the other treatments is we're not we never sure what the major cause is and so often we find that we're trying things out and never sure if we've actually obliterated the sleep apnea completely
1: so i always try to explain to patients first of all if if we're just trying to get them to stop snoring a nasal surgery might work but the yes. actual surgeries to stop apnea's so to stop the Obstruction at the throat and the tongue base are major, major surgeries that that are high risk, very painful and often don't work. So I never, ever prescribe them. I think since the invention of CPAP, they are quite out of fashion unless the patient is, you know, really, really not doing well on uh, CPAP. The type of things like, you know, putting wires into the tongue and um, Mm -hmm. bringing it closer to the jaw, lengthening the jaw, Doing mm. osteotomies, and um, have you have you heard of? Um, no, recently people have been trying to put um, stimulation devices in the neck, muscle yep. stimulation devices. What do you know yep. about those, and do they work?
2: So the hyp the hypoglossal nerve stimulators. So yes. it's 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 pretty much like a pacemaker, um, in that you have uh, like. You have the device implanted in the skin under the, under the chest, and then the electrode goes up the neck into the bot, underneath the jaw into the bottom of the tongue. And what it's designed to do is stimulate the tongue so that when you fall asleep, so, or when you have an apnea, so that the tongue pulls itself forward instead of allowing it to fall back. So again, it's only treating one part of the, of the sleep apnea, so it's not, um, it's not gonna fix everybody. But it does seem to have quite good results. I don't know of anybody who does it in South Africa. I mean, I may be wrong. No, but also, I, don't know. I also haven't.
1: I also haven't seen it. But uh, apparently, yeah. the results are quite promising.
2: Yes, so they are quite promising. Again, people would go, "I don't know that I want a pacemaker in me." <laughs> yeah. So, so it, it, you know, I'm not sure that it's 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 better. It's better than CPAP. I think it is better in that you you don't have to. Worry about the patient using it because basically it's there and it will, it will just work, right? So the compliance issues is, is, is not a problem. Um, but it does seem to work. I mean, I have no idea what the costs are going to be, um, for that. Um, but I think it, it will come through in, in South Africa. I mean, it will come through. And I think it's something that we would try, particularly in those patients who just, just can't tolerate CPAP. And there are multiple reasons why they can't. I think the important thing is often patients, bail off CPAP without going to see anybody. And I mean, I don't mean just go see the distributor of the machine, like the distributor sold them the machine, but actually going to a medical person and going, I can't tolerate this machine. Please, could we have a conversation about what's wrong? And And sometimes it's something very simple. So often patients will go through the process of having a sleep study, being put on CPAP, and nobody in the process, and that's partly because they don't actually see a doctor in the process, but nobody has noticed that they've got a really badly blocked nose. And if you have a bla- badly blocked nose, you're going to be using such high pressures on the CPAP. So 15, 16 centimeters of water trying to push through your nose that it's going to be very difficult to sleep. However, if you take that same patient, send them to the ENT and say, please open this nose, right? So that's wide open and then put them on CPAP. You find the pressures come down to 11, 12, which are much more manageable. So it is about treating the whole patient and looking at all of these all of these problems. Um, Often patients will don't want to stay on CPAP because they have a big leak from the mask. Then you need to go and find another mask because there is a mask out there that fits your face. Um, It just may not be in this this particular distributor that you've been to. So you may need to go and see another one. So just really go search online and and look for where there are different different distributors um, for CPAP machines. So it might be a leak, it might be the nose problem, Um, it might be that actually what's happened when you, and it happens occasionally, probably in my experience about 10% of patients that we put on to CPAP, that you suddenly switch obstructive sleep apneas into central sleep apneas, and so um, you still wake up, um, you're still having apneas, you're still pulling the mask off, you're still aware that you're not breathing at night, they've just turned into different a different type of apnea. And sometimes we need to change the, the the entire CPAP machine to manage that. Other times there are patients who will go on CPAP and it appears to be working and they sleep on it, but they still wake up tired and so they go, it's not working. It's important to understand there is more than one sleep disorder and often we find that patients have two sleep disorders. So I had a patient who had severe sleep apnea. Um, he was in his, I think he was late 40s, rugby player, so really large man came to see me, and we had this conversation, and I said, but you must have sleep apnea. He goes, no, I do. I've got sleep apnea. And I goes, so are you on CPAP? No, I'm on CPAP. And I go, so what's the problem? He goes, I'm still falling asleep driving. But when, we looked in, when I looked into the history, and I kind of went, okay, so tell me when you first started falling asleep driving, it turned out that that was when he was about 23, when he was at varsity. And it turned out that he actually had narcolepsy as well as severe sleep apnea. So once we found out that he had narcolepsy and we could treat that, then he was fine during the day. So don't ever assume that you could only have sleep apnea. Um, you of, often patients have two, more than one sleep disorder.
1: Okay, so now that um, we spoke quite comprehensively um, on obstructive sleep apnea, in the last uh, 10 minutes of the show, can we discuss um, some other sleep disorders? What else do you see in, in your practice, and uh, mm-hmm. when, when should patients come to see you?
2: Mm. So the main the main p- things I see are, are
1: Sorry, it seems that we've uh, lost Alison right there We're just busy trying to reconnect We're speaking with Dr. Alison Bentley She is a sleep therapist at the Donoghue Hospital And Sunwood Park And we've been speaking sleep disorders Mainly obstructive sleep apnea And as she was saying She's um, one of the doctors that analyses uh, sleep She sends a machine home with you to check you for obstructive sleep apnea. It's a simple wristwatch device that you wear on your wrist. You put a probe on your finger and on your chest and uh, take the device back, and they download the information. It wasn't necessary to go into... It's not so necessary to go into a sleep lab um, anymore. And we are just discussing... Sorry, Alison, are you there? We lost you for a few minutes. Okay, sorry, we... we I lost you just before we were about to talk about...
2: So the one thing I was talking about is babies who, who are not sleeping well, who are waking up regularly during the night. Um, when do you go and see a doctor? Anytime after six months of age. If they're still waking up often, then that's a sleep problem. And unfortunately, it's not going to go away naturally. It's likely to persist and likely to get worse.
1: And what, and what and also, you, what, what, what is the most common cause usually with those children, interestingly?
2: Common, so commonly, commonly it's because they've just never learned how to fall asleep on their own. And the parents always kind of go, it's my fault. I did everything wrong. And I go, no, it's not your fault. Baby made a decision that there was an easier way to fall asleep than just falling asleep on their own. Um, and and you and parents just enable it because they think that's the right thing to do, you know. I mean, you've had kids, you know that the first six months all you do is try and survive, <laughs> um, and like, try and keep them alive. As long as I keep them alive, I feel like I've done a good job. And so, at around six months of age, babies should start dropping feeds at night because their circadian rhythms kick in, and the gut is resting at night, so they shouldn't be as hungry. And so, by about six months, most babies should be dropping feeds and and starting to sleep through. And if they don't, um, and particularly if they're getting worse at that point, then that's a sleep problem and it needs to be managed. And when it needs to be managed, you need to teach baby how to fall asleep properly. I don't believe in controlled crying. I don't believe in leaving children to scream. Um, I believe that parents sit there and teach their kid what they want them to do. So I have a group of those patients. The other patients that I have are adult insomniacs, so adults who don't sleep well. When do you see a doctor? When, when it's persisting and it's not going away. Um... Or you can see, so firstly you can see a doctor if there's a really good reason why you can't sleep. So there's been a death in the family or there's a hugely stressful event and you can't sleep. Please go see your doctor. Ask for five sleeping tablets just to see you through the event. Um, You're not going to get hooked on them just with five, but it is going to make sure that you manage that event a lot better. And then you come out the other side, stop them, and you're sleeping properly.
1: Okay, we're
0: just going to take our final uh,
1: ad break for two minutes, Mm -hmm. and then we'll carry on speaking.
0: This is Medical Monday, brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care.
1: Welcome back to your final few minutes of Discam Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson. We're speaking to sleep therapist Dr. Alison Bentley. Well, this hour's really just flown uh, by. (laughs) Yes. we've uh, spoken about all different types of sleeping problems and now we are we've just gone through uh, children sleeping and insomnia and what else Dr. Bentley? Okay.
2: so the, the main problem would be chronic insomnia and that is that is patients who for a for a long period of time and we're talking a couple of months up to decades have not been able to fall asleep properly um and you know, a lot of people are scared to go on sleeping tablets, and a lot of people say to me that doc- all the doctors do is prescribe sleeping tablets. I'm doing a lot of talks to doctors at the moment about insomnia to tell them that the main way of treating it is a cognitive behavioral therapy, so it's much more behavioral, um, getting you to change the way that you sleep, your views of sleep, um, and it works fairly well over a period of six to eight weeks. Um, and so most of my practice is doing that kind of thing and often getting people off sleeping tablets as well.
1: Okay, and uh, what about, uh, I've heard a lot of people talking about restless leg syndrome. Do you see a lot of that?
2: I Not so much. I used to see a lot of it, um, but I do still see patients with restless legs. So that's a an urge to move your legs at night um, because they feel uncomfortable. Um, and then it's obviously difficult to fall asleep because your legs are uncomfortable. I think the most important people to find with restless legs are children who have restless legs. Often it's called growing pains um, because it only happens at night. Um, and there is a thing, uh, growing pains is separate to restless legs, but often they just get put together. problem with restless legs is it interferes with sleep both while you're awake, but both as a problem falling asleep and during the night, so that children often often wake up tired the next day. When they go to school, because they fidget and they can't concentrate, they're often labeled as having ADHD and put on Ritalin, which wakes you up. And so it looks like you're managing the problem, but there was a very good article that said, are we diagnosing the wrong deficit in that we're diagnosing attention deficit instead of the sleep deficit.
1: Wow. Okay. Very interesting. Okay. And how do you, well, we'd love to have you back to speak about that. (laughs) Um, Maybe specifically now in uh, uh, sleep disorders in in children, we can do another show. Yes. Um, How do you treat restless leg syndrome?
2: So usually we treat it with medication. I mean, the important thing to understand is that it is a neurological disorder Um, And it's just because um, there's a decrease in dopamine, so a neurotransmitter in the brain. And that decrease happens... Remember, I told you about the gut, gut resting at night. Well, one yes. of the other rhythms that we have is in the early early evening, kind of five o'clock. The level of dopamine in the brain drops, and in some people, it's just too low, and therefore the the legs start getting twitchy at that time. So we replace dopamine using a tablet at night, and usually that solves the problem. It is every night, though, that they need to take it, often for the rest of their lives. Okay,
1: very interesting. All right, Dr. Bentley, thank you for joining us for the past Great pleasure. hour. How do we get hold of you? How do patients get hold of you if they want to come and see you, if they want to discuss with you, if they want to make an appointment?
2: So if it's, if it's Donald Gordon, so that's um, consulting rooms, that's 011-356-6457. If it's for a sleep study, if your doctor wants to send you for a sleep study, you can just get them to phone or their receptionist to phone O six four one six six one seven one oh and that is also if you want to book a consultation at Sunwood Park in Boxburg.
1: Do you have an email address that uh, people could use?
2: I do. It's Allison dot Bentley at Doctor Bentley Inc. So dot com.
1: Okay, brilliant. Thank you so much for okay. Joining us, look forward to interviewing in the future. We've had a a great past hour speaking sleep disorders with Dr. Alison Bentley, who is a sleep therapist. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next week at the same time. We're going to be interviewing Rabbi Dr. Akiva Tatz, special guest from England. They'll be joining us. Have a great week.